Hello, and welcome to Faculty Feed with me, Dr. Jerry Rabelais, Associate Vice President for Health Science Center Faculty Development at the University of Louisville. With me are my co-hosts, Dr. Stacy Sainer, Director of HSC Faculty Development, and Dr. Laura Weingartner, Director of Research for Faculty Health Professions Education. Once a week, we're going to come together to use this podcast to bring faculty development content to feed your hunger and satisfy your appetite so you can magnify your impact as an educator, clinician, researcher, and academic leader. So welcome today to Faculty Feed. We are just delighted to have Dr. Arani Batnagar, who is a professor in the Department of Medicine. He's got a number of titles. Let me just list them out for you, then he's going to tell us what's really important about his titles. He is the Smith and Lucille Gibson Professor of Medicine, Chief of the Division of Environmental Medicine, Director of the Christina Lee Brown Environment Institute and American Heart Association's Tobacco Regulation Center, and he's a distinguished university scholar. Well, Do- I think as you get older, you start collecting all these titles. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm pretty old. I don't have that many titles. So. So thank you for coming to join us today. Tell, tell us a bit about your background, how long you've been at UofL, and, and what do you do here? So um, well, I can start at the beginning. I did my PhD in India, and I moved to Galveston, Texas, and it was 1985. Uh, from there, I was a fellow. I did my fellowship there. And I was in the faculty and moved here in Louisville in 1998 in the Division of Cardiology as a professor with tenure, which is a big deal to me at that particular yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and I've been here since then. And so then tell us about the Environment Institute. So when we started working here many years ago in cardiology, we were looking at the mechanisms of heart disease. And those were basic biological mechanisms of how cholesterol accumulates and how you get arrhythmias and so on. But then uh, gradually I got more interested in distal causes. Why do people have heart disease to begin with? And it turns out that the more and more you probe, the more you find that there are these strong environmental influences, and we can call them social influences, economic influences, lifestyle issues, behavioral choices, but how we interact with the environment and what environment we live in has a great impact on the diseases. And so we can be fixing the hearts, we can give people statins, or we can give them you know, stents, but can we prevent the disease from happening in the first place? And so then I, I was uh, progressively getting drawn into this idea that maybe there is a, a strong environmental component. So many years ago, we had a program project from the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences. I was a program in environmental cardiology, and then we were working on a variety of different environmental studies. And so uh, several years ago, I think three years ago, we thought that they were, we were doing all this work separately and there were other, I think at that time, 12 or eight different centers that were doing environmental work within the university. So we said maybe it'd be a good idea to put them all together under one umbrella and then we can have a better concerted effort in trying to understand the impact of the environment. So we created the Envirome Institute um, about three years ago, almost four, uh, and then we had a generous gift to create this so that gives us an additional push to create something that's more formal and structured. So other than environmental cardiology, what what kind of other things are inside the institute? Cardiology and heart disease is an outcome, and we say that we want to figure out what is uh, causing or increasing the risk of heart disease, but the inputs are very many. So if you look at the environment, we think there are components that are 
from the natural environment, you know, there are components that relate to economics and sociology, there are behavioral issues, and so how all of these environmental factors affect heart disease. So we have, for example, a center on uh, healthy, clean air and water and soil. And so we think how these environmental influences affect disease risk. We have a, a super fund research program. We have a diabetes and obesity center. And we have a tobacco center. We have an environmental health sciences center. Um, and so all of these are studying not just chemical exposures from environment, but how we as people interact with the environment. And so it's a very diverse portfolio of interest and we have faculty ranges ranging from you know clinical medicine to um, pharmacology, physiology, biochemistry, but also sociology and psychology and communications so that we, we realize that this is not simply a medical problem that could only be addressed by medicine and we need a wider understanding of the environment. So that's why we call it the environment. So you've been writing about this a long time. I found a book from 2006 about environmental cardiology right. that you wrote. So that, this is new to me like this week, but not new to you. Because <laughs> when I think of heart disease, I think of those old standard things I learned in medical school about cholesterol and hypertension and diabetes and other sort of personal risk factors, uh, whether they're genetic or personal choices we make, like to smoke or not. Mm -hmm but really hadn't given any thought until you and I talked last week a bit about anything beyond that. What evidence does the Institute work on to try and further this whole area of study of environmental cardiology? Right, so the first uh, real strong evidence we obtained, it was controversial at the time, was that exposure to air pollution can cause heart disease. There was a lot of work showing that air pollution could cause asthma and lung problems and so on. But when we really looked at the data, it showed us that about 80% of the people who die from exposure to air pollution die from heart disease, right? So it is much more important than any other exposures. Same thing with tobacco. So tobacco kills more people from heart disease than, say, can lung cancer. Oh, okay. And people think that if you smoke, you cause lung cancer. Your chances of getting lung cancer are much less, only 10% compared to 40% chance of getting heart disease. So the, the heart and the circulatory system is very sensitive to environmental exposures. So we are looking at the effects, of course, air pollution. We are looking at and trying to understand the effects of smoking and now vaping, how that affects your, yes. your, your, your blood circulation, your heart function. And then we also uh, have a Superfund center, so you're looking at all the chemicals that are uh, extruded from the Superfund sites. In Louisville, we have one of the worst track records on air pollution in the country, and we've had this legacy for decades. We have a whole place called the Rubber Town, where up to like a few years ago, the emissions were eight to 10 times higher than there was allowed by law. So we've had this long legacy of air toxins, so we are looking at that. But then there are other less obvious causes that contribute to heart disease, for example, we are all attuned to the cycles of night and day, and this is an invariant feature of life on this planet. And if we desynchronize our lives from the cycle, there is a tax or a penalty to pay. So people who are, whose circadian rhythms are not aligned have a greater risk of heart disease, right? Wow. Than people whose, whose rhythms, and I'd be like shift workers and okay. nurses, they have much higher rates of obesity. So we live in that world. Yeah. Yeah. We, and acknowledges everybody. And right. so that's why the, the, the rate and the incidence of heart disease is so much higher because 
everybody lives in an unhealthy, desynchronized environment. So with the time zone change, so, I mean, not the time zones, but when they change uh, going from daylight savings. daylight savings to just regular standard time, what impact does that have on? Yes, yeah, so that, that's a good question. And it does impact, increase the risk of heart attacks and heart disease. It, is, it changes your blood pressure levels. It changes your risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. What is even more interesting is like Kentucky, because we live in the western edge of the time zone, we have much greater risk of uh, heart disease here than we would have elsewhere because our days end later. And, and, and so, so therefore, it is a much greater risk than if you lived in, say, D.C. or New York. So living in, within the time zone makes a big difference. But we're so well attuned. Heart disease also has this uh, characteristic of appearing in different times of day. So most people who have heart attacks or stroke, they have it between 4 to 5 a.m. to 10 a.m. Right? That's most of the heart attacks would happen. And there's a beautiful study showing that Pan came to Hawaii for vacation. They still had the heart attacks at Japan time. And when they were there in Hawaii for a week, then they risk change to Hawaii time. And and so we are so, so there is something about it. Just before getting up, there's a lot of stressful response. When you get up, your cortisol levels peak, your blood is at the thrombosis or thrombotic activity as the maximum because you are preparing for going out and hunting and killing and fighting. So your blood body needs to be geared up, right? So your blood needs to clot immediately in case you get attacked by animal as you go out, get up and start hunting. And so your, and your immune system is revved up early in the morning because preparing you for the hunt. I'm a morning person. I like to get up early. I like to exercise early in the morning. And yet you've defined the exact time period when I'm on the elliptical and doing the exercise in the morning should I change when I exercise? Yes. Uh, so I would say that, that this is the topic we discovered, uh, we, we discussed in our podcast, Elements of Nature with Dr. Foster. And, and I asked him the same exact question. And he said the best way to exercise, best time to exercise would be early afternoon. Yeah. And, and, and that's the time also you want to do things you're most alert with. But it, it varies with people. You must have heard there are larks and owls, and some people like to do things in the morning, sure. some people like to do in the evening. But I think ha exercising in the morning is a great way to start a day. Your met metabolism gets revved up, and so you don't you burn much more calories than if you exercise later. Um, but if you it, live to get the calorie <laughs> benefit, you no. So the the actual um, benefits would be equal in the morning and the evening, but in early afternoon you can be you have greater capacity. Well, so it I sounds see. like, you know, from this discussion, it just emphasizes like how complex and how many different facets there are to some of these uh, like health health problems that you're, you're trying to study. So how do you know how to narrow down what the focus is or how do people who do these types of studies know how to narrow down? Well, so you have to ask very specific questions, for example, if you're asking about the exercise. So you can measure capacity, excess capacity at different times of the day. And, and so then you see that people who are at the peak performance, they usually do it early afternoons, uh, don't do it early in the morning. Um, and, and, but if you want to get the maximal uh, metabolic benefits, then you might do it in the morning. So there are different uh, outcomes for different times. So you, you had said too that some of the data that you had collected, some of the outcomes were controversial at first. What changed? that they became accepted. Ah, so for example, with the air pollution, 
it was very difficult for people to believe in the late 90s that just breathing air pollution is going to trigger heart attacks, right? But then data accumulated over decades. We have over 200 papers from 150 different cities showing that when the levels of air pollution peak, six hours later there's a peak in the rates of heart attacks, right? And you can see that in every metropolitan area. There is enormous amount of data. There was a, something called the Harvard Six City Studies. They followed these six cities for 16 years and found the cities that were most polluted had the highest levels of death. Then they followed data showing that after they started cleaning up the cities, for example, Pittsburgh, uh, and they, when they started cleaning up the cities, you could see that there was an increase in the lifespan of people living in that city. Right? So now we have specific dose response curves. So we can predict, and from that prediction, we can estimate that air pollution globally kills, is responsible for 7 million premature deaths worldwide, and mostly in areas which have high levels of air pollution. So we have very good estimates. The weight of evidence has made that possible. But the, the, this is where I think our, our contribution here has been critical. Epidemiology can only tell you that much. This mantra, causation, but association is not causation. So even though we had this enormous amounts of um, information about uh, the, or this epidemiological link between exposure and deaths, there was no biological plausibility. So then we set up a lab here. It's in the MDR building where we expose mice to polluted air accumulated or concentrated from Floyd and Ali interface. And then we expose mice to this, and they have greater risk of heart disease. They become more obese when they're put on high-fat diet and so on. So our animal studies were critical in providing biological plausibility to the epidemiological link. And so that now, everybody accepts that, that uh, air pollution causes heart attacks or heart disease. And, and so it, it really is heart attacks, not like myocardial inflammation, it's not a toxin-mediated myocardial uh, cardiomyopathy, it is heart attacks that are being caused by pollution. Right, so what you would uh, call acute myocardial infection, uh, infarction, and there are two types, STEMI and non-STEMI, so that ST elevation myocardial infarction and non-ST elevation. So it is the ST elevation MI that is elevated by air exposure to air pollution, not the non-STEMI. And also, congestive heart failure, your progression of heart failure is fast, higher, is much more severe when you're exposed to air pollution. People have shown that. Your incidence or risk of stroke is higher. These risks are not very, very large. They're like 4 to 10%. But over a population, that's a lot of risk. And, and everybody is, is breathing polluted air. We don't have a choice, right? And even our children growing up, we, we've seen studies where children's IQs are affected because they're exposed to polluted air. And so children have no choice, and we don't have any choice, and there's enormous amounts of air we breathe. So there was an estimate that if you are in a, in a highly polluted city like New Delhi, if you're living in your New Delhi, you're, everybody, including a five-year-old, is smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And, and here, you know, it's like maybe two and a half <laughs> of cigarettes a day that we have with lower levels of air pollution. So, but we are all exposed to a lot of... So, the, the state of Kentucky, for a variety of reasons, has a lot of heart disease. And um, smoking is part of it. And uh, air pollution, maybe in the cities, is, as you've told us now, part of it. Are there other things about 
Oh, you mentioned the western edge of the eastern time zone is part of it as well. For people who are listening to this, they got to breathe air. They live where they live, other than moving to New York or something, which might bring its own risks. What do they do? I mean, what do you do with this information? Let me go back to your first question about are there other factors in Kentucky contributing to the higher risk of heart disease? And I think the single most biggest factor is obesity and diabetes. And it, again, it just like you know, air pollution, smoking, whatever, you can have individual attribution of choices, or you can look at the wider sociological um, environment. And, and people are give, living in an environment where there is cheap food available, there are all those um, commercials about food, there are all this, you know, bad eating habits, there is no place to walk. I mean, it's a if a person comes into, with some heart disease risk, comes into a cardiologist's office, we tell them, you know, you need to exercise and eat well. Well, we don't know what that means, right? You, then you put people in cities where you make it impossible for people to walk. And then you say, you are not walking. Well, you, you, made, you designed the city in such a way that nobody can walk, uh, you know, more than half a mile. And then you say, well, you should eat good nutritious food. Like, nobody knows what good nutritious food is. If you go to a grocery store like, like Kroger or, or other places, um, a friend of mine estimated that 80% of the food there is does has no nutritional value at all. It's not even food. So we don't know what to call I mean, is Cheetos a food category? It is <laughs> <laughs> for some people. I know, I know, but that's, that's, the, that's problem. the problem. Yeah. This is not food. There is only the food, the thing in the aisles at the end, or sorry, in the edges as food, everything in the aisles is not food at all. So the fruit and vegetable section probably counts. That's the only one that counts, and the surrounding, you have dairy and, and meat and stuff like that, but anything, oh. those, those eight, whatever, 60 aisles, there's no food there. Unless we change the relationship to food, but that's not a simple biological problem, right? It's a sociological, economic, cultural problem. Yeah. And that's why we need to study culture, economics, and sociology to understand how are we going to get a grip and understanding of the risk of heart disease. And that's the, the reason for the Environment Institute is we cannot be constrained to biology. And we cannot be constrained with the idea of only studying disease. We need to study how are we lost our health, right? A disease is the outcome of something, which is the loss of health. And so we need to figure out how to actively promote health and to passively prevent disease. So, Laura, you asked about, given the complexity of all the factors that play a role in what might result in a heart attack or a stroke, and Arnie, you have just sum summarized a number of factors relating to specifically to Kentucky that we largely can't get away from. We could, we could skip the aisles of Kroger, maybe, mm -hmm. and just eat the fruits and vegetables, meat and dairy. But when it just seems like an enormous task to take on what the Environment Institute starts to take on, how do you manage those maybe dozens or hundreds of variables that are coming into play? How many can you study at once, and how do you sort that out? Right. That's a very good question. We struggled with that for almost a decade. So the idea then is that if we start studying disease, we would be sidetracked because you'll have to de develop prevention methods for heart disease and cancer and you know bladder cancer and dementia and Alzheimer's. And there's a whole range of it, actually cottage industries trying to prevent each of these diseases. So we said, let's change the conversation. Let's talk about health and not disease. So part of the new initiative is 
uh, in creating this uh, Environment Institute's new, what we call the new campus or the new vision of health campus, is to move away from the medical school. The only reason people come here because they're sick or diseased or want right. to, but let's not talk about disease at all. Let's talk about health. And when you start thinking about that, first of all, nobody knows how health is defined. We have a National Institutes of Health. We don't know what health means, right? If you go there, I keep telling my friends, suppose I grew a beard and I wore a toga and walked up to the steps of the NIH and said, what is health? Like, nobody would know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they say, how do you measure health? Nobody would know. There is no measurement of health, right? We don't even understand what the quantity is. But we know it's important because if you lose it, you're in big trouble. So what are the, but what are the pillars of health? What are the characteristics? Let's start with that. So we have three characteristics that we identified. One is, of course, um, good food, nutrition. Second thing is physical activity. And the third thing is sleep. These are the three main pillars of, of health of health. And so we are trying to understand how these things interact with each other, okay. what constitutes good nutrition, how does it impact your physical activity, and how does physical activity affect your nutritional status, and how both of them affect sleep, and then how sleep affects all the things. So, there, so we know these individual components, which I say we know the, the different words, but we do not know the grammar of health. How these things are related to each other, right? How sleep affects physical activity, what are the exact physiological processes, right? Is it the, you know, the HPA axis, it is the, the sympathetic nervous system, is it your cortisol level, is it your melatonin levels, and how does, say, for example, a high-protein diet affects melatonin level secretion, right? Or we know that some amino acids can increase melatonin secretion. So how these things act and function at a biological level. And the one thing I've learned with working with, within the domains of medical schools is that most of this social determinants of health and, and the economic reasons, the whole dialogue just tethers or sort of floats around the ether. It has no rigorous bearing and anchoring. We need to connect that to biology. We can't be talking, oh, if I eat this, I'm happy if I go to exercise. Well, tell me why. For example, we're doing a really interesting project in if you exercise, you have a better capacity for wound healing. Okay, so now why does the wound healing cell, what sort of, you know, monocytes, populations, T cells and B cells, what type of inflammatory markers are activated by exercise and how that whole process is orchestrated. So unless we can link all our social, behavioral, economic issues with biology, we don't have a satisfying explanation. And until we have, a, if we don't have a satisfying, scientifically rigorous explanation, we cannot argue for policy because it just floats around there. And there are all these ideologies that we don't want to get into. Well, I really like your clarification to help me think about this and frame it in terms of health, nutrition, exercise, sleep, and how they work together. Rather than, we, it seems like for decades you could study, because you've studied, people have studied for decades, all the other things mm -hmm. that make you not healthy. Mm -hmm. Not much point in studying that anymore. We know those things are bad for you. So we just soon study the good things. And those things are people, those are things that people can control. And you can do something about it. And what, what brought this to stark relief was COVID. So we have COVID and now we have this variant, the subvariants, whatever. How can we then find ourselves, you know, trying to immunize ourselves or protect ourselves from each of these threats? Now we have monkeypox and, you know, who knows tomorrow, whatever else would come up. So the only thing we can do as people is to improve our health and resilience. 
because that will simultaneously concurrently improve your resilience to a host of different things, not just infectious diseases. You know, 70% of people in the United States who died from during COVID were obese. So what can we do single most, the important thing to protect ourselves from COVID would be to be, have a healthy lifestyle, right? And so if we figure that out, whatever we have, we are facing now, and whatever the future may bring, we would be better prepared to face. So, but we need to, but we don't know really what is nutritional food. You know, we don't know what, how, what physical activity means and what sleep means. Why do we even sleep? Nobody knows that either. So when you say something like that, I'll tell you my initial reaction is, is wait, since like fourth grade, I've been told what nutrition is. Mm -hmm. And that I remember food pyramids and the F, uh, USDA, and I remember what kind of, attempts to get people to organize their plate the right way so it's got like half green stuff and a little bit of meat and no dessert and but you just said that nobody knows what good nutrition is yeah so how do we reconcile that that, that is all fictional <laughs> <laughs> the, the food pyramid was made by a couple of bureaucrats in, in the department of agriculture building in the basement in dc because they needed eisenhower to come out with some policy yep okay it wasn't based on any scientific fact anything we have my plate is based on no scientific no rigorous scientific evidence my uh, a friend of mine she is one of the editors in circulation the leading journal in heart disease she has refused to um, review nutritional epi data because she said I'm a scientist I review scientific papers okay I, I don't review fairy tales you can send it, <laughs> send it to a fiction to the New York Times review, you know some literary critic because it, it just there is there is no there are no really rigorous control randomized trials of any of these things we have poorly controlled study there was a, a, a study within seven, eight different countries at the time. If you know, this is a very famous guy. His name was Ansel, and he did a large nutritional study of many different countries and cultures. And he said, people who eat more fat die early, whatever. But there were other confounding social, cultural factors that he could not address, and the study could not address, and that's become dogma. For years, we thought fat was the worst possible thing, right. and, and then we switched everybody to carbohydrates, and now suddenly carbs are the evil thing, yes. right? And we don't know what we should go out to be cured, keto diet. Well, now they say, let's, let's, let's have paleo diet. Okay, so, <laughs> so say, okay, fine, let's have paleo diet. That's the healthiest diet human beings have had. But since our paleolithic ancestors, since agriculture in Europe, we only have data from Europe, not there. Since 10,000 years ago, since the advent of agriculture in Europe, there have been mutations in 120 genes because of food. So now we have irrevocably changed our genetic makeup. If you go back to the paleo diet, that's not going to work for us anymore. <laughs> because you evolved. Because you're not paleo. You're not paleo. <laughs> your food could be paleo, but you're not paleo. Okay. Boy, this is getting more complex. Um, but it's fascinating stuff that you're telling us about. So, so you've talked about nutrition. A lot of people exercise, right? And is there such a thing as too much? We've talked about some timing issues about when you might be more effective, but is there too much exercise? So. Uh, th yes, there could be. We, we have no clear answer, but we have some signs. People who exercise a lot have a much, for example, athletes, and even kids and athletes who are in competitive sports, have two to three higher risk of infections, recurrent infections, the immune compromise. And you would see these athletes and they fall so sickly, young and healthy, and you know, but in an event, just before that, they come down with flu because they're much more sensitive to infections. There are um, studies that you could have, of course, repeated injuries and so on, and that's a different story altogether. But you could develop um, cardiac hypertrophy and fibrosis with, with, with extreme 
um, whatever elite level exercise. There was a study they were doing in, in Harvard. They looked at these football um, players when they joined Harvard and when they left in five years, and they all, they, most of them developed cardiomyopathy and they had fibrosis. And in some of them, five years followed, five years later, they could revert. But in some people, it doesn't reverse. So yeah, there, there could be something like that. I mean, for things like the marathon running is an extremely challenging insult to your body, you know. And so whether that's entirely healthy, at least to me, it's not clear. But obviously, that's the tiniest fraction of people who exercise at all, who are these elite athletes. For the rank and file who run a few miles a week or spend 20 minutes on the elliptical at a low number. I don't think we, we, I can, we, we, we overdo it. I don't think we can overdo it, even if we try. Right. Yeah, we're right. not going to overdo it. So the uh, Environment Institute just received a massive grant. And one of the things that you mentioned to me that you were going to be studying was greenness and its impact on health. Can you say something about that? Yeah, so it, go back, it goes back to the discussion we were having about the elements of the natural environment and how it affects the risk of heart disease. And there are uh, some, again, telltale studies showing that an association between cardiovascular disease risk, even all-cause mortality, with greener neighborhoods. So people who live in green neighborhoods have much lower risk of mortality and heart disease. And again, that is confusing because people who live in green neighborhoods are healthier, they're richer, they're better off, they're more socioeconomic means, they're better access to medical care. So we couldn't dissociate the two things. One interesting study that came out was in the United States, there is something called the um, ash borer infestation and this beetle is killing ash trees. And it started from north, from the north. And as it, the epidemic moved down, there was a loss of trees. We lost over, I don't know, 20, 30 million trees. And as the trees died, there was a corresponding increase in heart attacks. Wow. And so in communities where trees died, people died as well. So they think that there may be some connection. We don't know what the connection is. So we, again, we cannot address this in, by just looking at associations. So we started this project. It's called the Green Heart Project. And so what we, we are going to do in this project, actually doing it now, is we get a baseline data from a community. And we get baseline data from 500, 700 people with in-person exams and detailed evaluation. And then we measure the levels of air pollution in the area as well as noise and light. And then we plant trees and then come back to then see where the planting of the trees is going to change the risk of heart disease in the community. Now, if you plant trees, as you know, it's going to take 30 years for the trees to grow. So we have to plant very large trees. And each of these, or most of these trees are like 15, 20, 30 foot trees. And we have to plant at least 10,000 of these trees, right? So it's an enormously expensive project. The clinical aspect is supported by the Nature Conservancy. The greening is, um, no, the clinical part is supported by the National Institutes of Health, and the greening part by the Nature Conservancy. And uh, it's, I don't know, maybe $15, $18 million project because these trees are very, very expensive. I was going to say, that's yeah. a huge tree to plant. We can, yeah. I can walk you there. This is done in South Louisville next mm. to the airport. Right now we're planting, so we want these trees, and we have trees coming in the semi-trucks every day. They are like, um, you know, 15, 30-foot trees. Uh, their root ball is at least six to eight feet, and they come from 
Oregon and, and Nashville and, the, and uh, Ohio, from around the country, we're getting these large trees to and put here. And uh, so we'll see what happens. So that sort of work is expensive, time-consuming, and requires enormous resources and organization. We literally have hundreds of people working on it. We have 40 people just in the tree planting crew uh, every day who go and plant these trees. And, but unless you do something like that, we'll never get the right answers, right. right? We can be, you know, shuffling papers, say, well, I want to see this association, that association. We need to take the bull by the horns and not be nibbling at the edges. So do we know if it's just having the trees in the neighborhood or individuals actually, like, walk in that neighborhood and, like, or around the trees rather than in their house? So we don't know. So that's what you're trying to find out. So we are trying to plant trees, and we, what we're looking for Lots of reasons. So one reason could be that the trees could decrease the levels of air pollution. So we're doing detailed uh, mapping of the of the uh, pollution levels in the area. It could decrease noise and light, and we're following those. It could also be just a psychological effect. People just look at the trees and they just feel happy. So we look. We're asking. We have a bunch of um, psychological exams people go through for this step. We are looking at uh, other reasons. For example, people are more outside. Because once you have a greener neighborhood, you talk to your neighbors and you feel better and your heart disease go down because you, you think of your place. A sense of place and belonging is so important to human beings that where you live, if you think, and the city and the, your circle and your friends and your house, if you belong there, you're a much healthier person than if you were just rudderless. Um, so so the, the sense of belonging, social cohesion will improve your measuring that. Uh, it could also be that people are exercising more. So we're measuring that because greener neighborhoods, people are more outside, so we're trying to measure that. But there are a host of other benefits that we need to follow. For example, the energy cost of heating a house or cooling a house goes down if you have more trees. So we're trying to look at energy consumption in the place. We have all the LGNA records. We're trying to work with them. We, uh, crime goes down. You know, you have this broken window hypothesis that in neighborhoods that are broken and unkept, there's more crime. Crime rates go down. There, we have even seen data where some people claim that suicide rates go down with more green uh, trees. We just finished a very large study with five million cancer cases uh, from across the country, and we found that people with a diagnosis of cancer survive longer if they live in more green areas. Right? So there is something of this affinity between human beings and a natural surrounding, some people call it biophilia, that we have this need to work, to be around living things, whether it's trees or plants or pets, but other people, we need to be around other things to feel complete and wholesome. So how, how long does this study run? So the study's already been um, for four years. We had to shut it down for two years, obviously, because of COVID we couldn't do anything. Um, but we, have, uh, we are going to complete all our plantings by the end of this summer. We have done two baseline evaluations, and then we'll do another two, so maybe two, uh, another two, three years. So you mentioned earlier about your podcast, Elements of Nature, that addresses many of these kinds of things. Can you tell us more about your podcast? Yes, so Elements of Nature is a conversation just like we're having here, an informal conversation about different elements of nature and how they affect health. For example, we talk about circadian rhythms and how that might affect your health, or uh, about pollution and air pollution. We talk about green uh, spaces and greenness exposure. We bring in um, some of the most accomplished scientists and writers 
who have written or done work in this area and we have a casual conversation and you can find it anywhere you know apple google spotify it's available available everywhere each week we like to ask our listeners um to do something so uh you know considering everything that we've talked about today uh around heart disease but around um, the environment what would you ask our our listeners to do after they hear this podcast well, of course, the number one thing is plant a tree. <laughs> there, there is, there's old Chinese proverb that says, life begins the day you plant a garden. And I think planting trees is when you realize that your life is only limited, that some things you do will outlast you. No? And there's a, there's a beautiful poem, I'm, you know, I'm just to recite for you. It says, uh, trees are the earth's endless effort to reach to a listening heaven. Yeah, this is by Tagore. And, and so there is this affinity that we have for trees, but there is a great need. So with, with in, like in Louisville, our uh, canopy could be double of what it is. We lost a lot of trees because of ash infestation. Uh, so even if you plant trees, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like dogwood or some fancy tree, but some native species, and you take care of a tree, let it flourish, we need as many trees as we can. I just read that in China they're making this big initiative of planting 100 billion trees. You know, uh, we have to reforest parts of the globe that we have really decimated. And so there's urgent need. And we can't all go to Amazon and, you know, start you know, protesting there or whatever. But we can plant a tree in a backyard, right? That's the little thing that we can do, and that's what we should Okay, do. there you go. You've got your assignment now. Plant a tree this coming week once you hear this podcast. Thank you so much for coming today. Wow, fascinating stuff. I mean, the work that you're doing is so important, has such tremendous impact, and the fact that it happens here at the University of Louisville in the Environment Institute, it, it's just a, it's a feather in the cap of the University of Louisville, the state of Kentucky. Thank you for all that you've done to bring that here, to do it, to do it well. It, it's just fascinating. I look forward to seeing what you, what you find from this. I'm sure all our listeners do. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for the invitation and thank you for having me on your show. If you want to up your game as a professional educator or to enhance your leadership skills in the academic setting, this is the place to be as together we strive to make UofL a great place to learn, a great place to work, and a great place to invest. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links and additional information from today's session, as well as our email address. Feel free to contact us at facfeed at louisville.edu. That's F-A-C-F-E-E-D at louisville.edu. Join us next time for more and come hungry.